This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're talking about Vox videos. Maybe you've seen Vox videos. Remember Vox, the company founded by Ezra Klein, Melissa Bell, Maddie Iglesias? They make videos and they have a website where they run articles. And we're talking about them today. So, Helen, kick us off. Okay, so this was uh, my weekly pick, my third weekly pick. And I wasn't sure what to do uh, this week, but last week, Nina mentioned something that really got me thinking. And it's something that I really wanted to talk about, which is the idea that if something is a contentious issue, it's by definition, highly complicated. You know, it's not, A, we live in a complex and contradictory universe, but if something is, um, you know, if there's some debate around it or some questions or whatever, then it's by definition, highly complicated. And so I um, thought that this Vox study could be a part two to our um, regime ethics Instagram poetry, because I think they're doing this sort of a similar thing. Um, So where to begin? (laughs) I picked for us a number of videos. I don't know if you guys watched the same videos or if we watched different ones. Obviously, now there are Netflix series about these. They're called Vox Explained. Obviously, the word explained, I mean, documentaries in general, um, you know, they, they, they're presenting something as factual, but often we know that they're from a, a certain perspective. But this, this word explained um, gives this vibe that, you know, this is, this is completely correct and it's an introduction to a topic and it's fully explained. You'll get the, the pocket guide and it will be fully comprehensive. Everything is explained using logic and reason. But this is just not, not true at all. I sort of feel like... Um, I wonder if if you guys had watched a video that was something that touched on a subject that you know about. A few of these I know quite a lot about. One of them I won't even say what it is because it's such a contentious issue, but I happen to have experience about this topic that dates back about 15 years, longer even, or yeah, about 15 years. Anyway, so the point being, it was like, to me, Vox videos act in a certain way like the Jordan Peterson thing. And I use this example all the time, this Dunning-Kruger effect, where when somebody, everything, you know, that the pattern really works and you're like, gosh, I, I learned a lot there and this seems nuanced. I'll go on to the nuanced question in a second. But when it touches on something that you happen to have a lot of knowledge about, you're suddenly like, oh, this, this entire edifice has been sort of, like the, the Wizard of Oz curtain has been removed. And obviously nobody... nobody is undivided in this world. So nobody has a total vision of anything. You can point to truth and you can be beyond ideology or beyond neurosis or whatever in your way that you address things. But, you know, these videos sort of paint themselves as being nuanced and balanced and clear. So in one particular video, um, so you use this term, so I don't want to tread on your toes later, Nina, this false dialectic. So this, this, this vision of two sides of the argument when what is what is put forward is like 10% conceding to one side of the of the argument let's say there's many sides but one one side where it's sort of like you know this is the main line ideological position but we're so nuanced that we're giving you this little crumb of the other side to disguise the fact that it's completely railroaded the full complexity so one video left out the four or five key facts of the argument that if you know anything about it you're like well hang on and it's the sort of, um, I gave this example when we were discussing this topic over text, this sort of, by golly, gee whiz, slap the thigh, isn't it all so simple? You know, well, we should just get on with it, you know? And it's just, it's sort of galling when you know about it. And it's not to say that like, whatever the conclusion is, is incorrect. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. I have watched certain videos. I'm like, fair enough. But again, maybe it's because I don't know about that su- subject. And you know, I always try to, again, we're all flawed, but I always try to say when I don't know about something that, you know, I'm not an expert, so don't trust what I'm saying. But some things I do know that I know more than most people about, as we all do, we have our areas of interest. Um, but yeah, it's this, it's this illusion of this pattern of, of objectivity. And obviously using this bricolage montage effect, giving a YouTube vibe. So we see um, corporations, I think in the news this week, there was something where a corporation was using um, the aesthetics of radicalism. So the, the rebel media on YouTube, using the aesthetics of sort of these rebellious independent journalists, but creating a very slick and very unbalanced piece. For instance, in in one video, um, there's a lot of scientific uh, 
graphs and the scales of reference, whilst let's say factually the the um, amount stated in this given graph, but the scales of reference are completely out of scale. Really, really um, one-sided. Um, and again, so, so what it kind of is, it's a sort of pocketbook guide to how to have the right opinion, which is completely the corporate ideological line, whilst at the same time um, being conveyed that this is reasonable so that you yourself can feel reasonable by actually having a highly unreasonable position, one that doesn't capture contradiction, one that doesn't capture the totality of the topic. Um, one that you can kind of go to a to a dinner party and seem au fait with a topic, but you actually have have no idea what you're talking about. And I think this is one real challenge of our age: is this Dunning Kruger effect, um, this level of certainty that one has when one knows very little about something. And the universe is complex and complicated. And I think that the best sort of system for for humans living in this chaosmos, we who experience the chaosmos at the level of our subjectivity, which is traumatic, which encourage us, encourages us to look for easy answers, which is actually death drive, which is sort of return to the soothing womb tomb, but is rather to admit the, com the complexity of our world and the complexity of issues so that we can build societal structures that take into consideration this complexity. And I think the illusion of nuance and complexity with the words like explained, with the um, aesthetics of independent media, with the aesthetics of sort of bricolaged arguments, with the sort of um, reassuring but inoffensively flat voice of someone like Matt Damon or Rosario Dawson. Is it, I said, I was saying to Nina on, on text, it feels like Sesame Street for adults who have a certain level of education potential, who like to feel informed in a world that is terrifyingly fractured and anxiety producing. And the irony is that we, we, we live in this chaos mosque, which is anxiety producing, but the, the true anxiety, the toxic anxiety comes from repressing the truth of the anxiety. So anxiety is, you know, psychoanalytically speaking, quote unquote, the only true emotion. It's true because it's pointing to a reality, but the anxiety is a fetish over, over the truth of anxiety, which is we live on the precipice of nothingness. We are floating in this torn chaosmos void, a rock in the middle of this, you know, oblivion. But the inability to face that and to, 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 to build societal structures um, that, that deal with that and help us deal with that it returns in the repressed of the symptom of anxiety. And these soothing 12-minute pieces, 20-minute pieces, make us feel like we have a handle on something that we really, really don't. All right. Nina, you're up. Yeah, so I'd never seen any of these Vox videos before, but I had come across Vox um, as an online kind of magazine type thing, one among many that was doing something similar, which is purporting to give you sort of like a balanced uh, set of opinions. Um, I think, yeah, the videos are basically like the documentary version of the online uh, journalism, quote unquote. Um, I, I, I'm particularly kind of um, suspicious of and galled by, to use your word, Helen, the, the sound and the music that these um, documentaries use, which is very much like those of kind of um, adverts that are trying to sell you mobile phones and sort of um, the idea of connectivity and communication and how everything is sort of like whimsical and beautiful, um, a little bit strange, but you can kind of take it. Um, and it uses this kind of like very jaunty sort of, uh, sort of beep, 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 sound to make you think <laughs> that you've understood something, <laughs> especially when they're using graphs. Uh, and it's, it's highly <laughs> manipulative. Um, and I think, you know, this, this is, goes along with the, the, you know, the sort of the cutesy graphs. And, and I have to say that this, um, there's a design critic called Eli Schiff, who's amazing. And he coined this idea of the, what he called the humans of flat design. 
So the humans are flat design. And and he said, we live in a world that's surrounded by this. And you'll have seen this kind of design everywhere. It's where you don't have real images of people often. I mean, these Vox documentaries are using kind of like sometimes like 50s footage of children or whatever, like cutesy archival Americana stuff. But when when they draw kind of pictures of kind of contemporary humans, or you'll see this on signs, particularly relating to health or mask wearing, and it's it's not just the flat, um, you know, empty, depersonalized faces. It's the ones that try to be cute and 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 diverse. So they'll have a variety of very flat, often uh, featureless, but different colors of people wearing bright colored clothes and of being different shapes and sizes. And you'll have seen these kind of humans of flat. Design, who are not obviously real people, they're, they're kind of graphic designed images, but they're designed to kind of create this sort of illusion and fantasy and constructed kind of multicultural sort of everyone is included kind of universe. And it's it's everywhere. Like once you know about this idea of flat design and, and these, this way in which the human body is being depicted, um, it starts to become really um, ominous and menacing. In fact, because it seems like there's a kind of, uh, you know, aesthetic agenda that's kind of covering up the reality of the world. The world, you know, I mean, if if you had to use photographs of real human beings all the time, um, it it would be slightly different. Even though those are also often used in a kind of uh, a uh, particularly ideological way too. So that the joke about, you know, the black students on campus running every time the people are trying to put the prospectus together because they don't want to be photographed as, as the tokens. Um, you know, and I, so I think we, we have that going on. We have this kind of, you know, like the, the sort of, um, yeah, the false dialectic, the idea that you're getting kind of both sides of a story. Um, it's, it's so ideological, this level of like obfuscation that presents itself as the reasonable position, as Helen said. And, and I think you also drew attention to something that I often think about, which is, I, I'm, I'm probably using the real in the wrong way psychoanalytically, but what what I might call like the fantasy of the real, which is that, you know, sometimes when you're lying there, like let's say COVID, like I'm lying there thinking, okay, there is an objective truth to this situation, right? There is a reality. And maybe it's to do with tracing causes. Like maybe if we went all the way back and we went back to the lab and we discovered that this this thing was being made there and either it was an accident or it was released on purpose and it was this and then and that you know and and in some sense there is a truth right there is a there is a reality to every single story and and the fantasy i think is that you if only you could get behind all of the causes and get to the original thing and then you could trace everything back and then you could sort of prove it somehow and and this would transcend ideology and politics and language even you know there would be like a a story and and human beings have this kind of fantasy of the real constantly like they want there to be a a story and of course it sort of is it sort of does exist it both exists and it doesn't that possibility right something happened right unless we think the whole thing is is made up and even then something happened um <laughs> so there were all these kind of there's the fantasy of the real which i think yeah it points to this deep anxiety maybe as as helen put it and and what kind of can fill in that worry is that is the fake real and the fake resolution the which is just about um the right size as you say for for a dinner party you know the the idea of doxa it's like so imagine having conversation and i remember before um people could look at their phones and find out the right answer to something and so you'd end up in these like amazing drunken conversations that went on for five hours where someone was trying to convince you that the name of a film was this or this actor was in this film and no one could prove it and it was just amazing and it just went on forever and ever and it was actually something quite beautiful about this sort of insistence that you know someone had got something wrong or you had got something right and it was all very light-hearted generally um and now we don't live in that age exactly but what we do live in is the age of the kind of like perhaps like the one more fact so let's say you're having a conversation about a a contentious topic and and someone says well well, i I, I think this and someone i think this you know someone says oh but what about that and then everyone goes oh you know like the idea (laughs) that if you have just a tiny bit a bit more knowledge (laughs) and you could kind of you could you could play the role of the gotcha and you know and everyone would have to go oh well then you know that's settled right and and nothing's settled of course and and like you say helen i think this idea of like playing at being an adult it's like trying on these opinions for size does anyone actually really think anything 
it's not clear to me. Like the older you get, I mean, you, you do become more convinced about certain things, but the things you perhaps become more convinced about are things to do with your own experience in many ways. And also the kind of repetition of like um, arguments or conversations you've had with people that in a way get to the same point and you think, well, I've established that, we've established this, you know, and it's it's partly to do with research. It's partly to do with, you know, the serious and complicated work that other people have have done, whether we're talking about literature or science and, you know, insofar as one can enter into these different discourses, right, and understand these different texts, you know, and this plays out online when people are always going, citation needed and, you know, well, I'm historian here or I've done my research or whatever, you know, like there's a kind of performance of that as well. And I think, you know, fundamentally what we're talking about is like the the old story of the relationship between like doxa and truth, you know, I mean, everyone can have an opinion, like everyone that, and, and I was thinking while you're speaking that doxa in a way always comes from elsewhere, you know, it's always like the opinion of the other in a way that you, you yourself are kind of repeating or trying on, you know, it's like, oh, well, I heard this or don't most people think that, you know, whereas the problem is, you know, you could have a, a very obvious fallacy, like uh, millions of people could think something and they could all be wrong, <laughs> you know, and one person could think it and they would be right. Um, but it doesn't matter because, you know, the majority are going to like end up persecuting and prosecuting that person. Um, and then maybe a hundred years later, they might be a martyr, you know, but at the time they're just an annoying bastard who's saying something that other people don't like or an institution doesn't like, um, you know, and it is, it, it is, very, very, very strange to change your mind on things. I think it's a it's a mark of what it means to be most human is actually the capacity and the willingness to change your mind, even it even at the cost of like very destructive consequences or making yourself very unpopular or whatever. Um, and I think a lot of people have maybe had this experience in relation to various political issues over the last few years, and it's caused all kinds of rifts between people who were formerly friends. Um, and I think you know, maybe I'm just going to conclude by saying, perhaps bizarrely, well, not bizarrely, I mean, this is a very old claim. I mean, Aristotle talks about the third kind of friendship as being a kind of friendship of the truth, which is to say, you are united, not by um, enjoying each other's company, and not by kind of what you can do for each other, but by a kind of shared commitment to the truth, whatever that truth is. And, and the, the, the path to getting there might be very, very unpleasant. You know, science, if we were, we're going to talk about science in the B side, but you know, might teach you things that you don't want to know. <laughs> Science will ultimately make you very sad. <laughs> it will displace the human. It will like undermine potentially everything you thought was true, everything you think is fair, every every way you might like the world to be. You know, this is what it periodically and systematically um, does. Um, and I think therefore, like the commitment to truth within the bounds of friendship is one of the most beautiful and important things and rare things, actually that there can possibly be. And it would absolutely mitigate against this kind of doxastic, you know, false dialectic kind of dinner party, um, you know, ideological obfuscation um, and would be something else uh, entirely. All right. Time for me. Three people founded Vox. Ezra Klein, Melissa Bell, and Matthew Iglesias. All three were born between 1978 and 1984. Klein has a bachelor's degree in political science from the University of California at Santa Cruz. Bell has a master's in journalism from Georgetown. Iglesias has a bachelor's in philosophy from Harvard. None of the three has a PhD or a master's in a traditional academic discipline. There's nothing wrong with that. Lots of people from many backgrounds have interesting opinions. But Vox does not deal in opinion. It deals in facts. It presents itself as if it spoke with a kind of authority. In its mission statement, Vox describes itself this way. Vox's journalists candidly shepherd audiences through politics and policy, business and pop culture, food, science, and everything else that matters. Candidly shepherd. Shepherding is, literally, something you do with sheep. And yet these journalists have no special expertise. It's very clear how they write their pieces. The journalists interview some number of academics about a subject, decide which academics they agree with, and then treat the views of those academics as if they were simply factual. They lack the ability to independently evaluate scholarship, 
So they invest it with authority and then wield that authority to educate their readers. <laughs> Who are Vox's readers anyway? Most are college graduates and professionals, people with the same kind of education and training Vox's founders have. The writers aren't better educated than the readers. But the writers have talked to some academics, and they can quote those academics to push their preferred narratives. The readers don't have access to the universities anymore because they have real jobs that keep them busy. Vox is a means by which these people can feel part of expert discourse without being part of it. Vox is selling that feeling, that feeling that you know the facts, that you are informed, and other people aren't. A good education makes you less sure about things. It makes you more aware of how much you don't know. But in America, the purpose of education is to get a job. The more you project expertise, the more commercially valuable your degree is. College-educated Americans are incentivized to pretend to know what they're talking about. It doesn't matter if they actually know. After all, most employers are no better educated than their employees. The graduates who are successful start to believe their own hype. The graduates who aren't successful feel declassed. They're thrown into the working class alongside many people who never went to college and don't know the lingo. They miss that sense of superiority. So many Americans judge themselves the same way their parents and teachers judge them, by their grades, their level of education, the sense of epistemic authority they project. Torn from the university and plunged into the proletariat, these lumpen professionals are desperate to recover a lost sense of self-worth. Vox offers this to them. They don't read Vox to be informed. They read it to feel informed. To that end, the way Vox conveys its perspective is more important than whether it is true or valid. It is enough for Vox to present its view in an epistemically authoritative way, regardless of the content of the view or the strength of the arguments for it. There is a whole industry now based around this dynamic. The successful professionals sell the feeling of authority and superiority to the unsuccessful professionals. To a large degree, the successful professionals build their careers by exploiting the feelings of the unsuccessful professionals. Like Yertle the Turtle, they build wealth and influence by standing on the shoulders of their brethren. Vax got off the ground with funding from a number of venture capital firms. General Atlantic played the largest role. It was founded by billionaire Charles F. Feeney, the guy who founded Duty Free Shoppers Limited. Perhaps you've seen those shops? They're often located in international airports. Politically, Feeney is known as one of the big donors to Sinn Féin, the separatist party in Northern Ireland. He also played a big role in kicking off the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Feeney graduated from Cornell's School of Hotel Administration. Other major investors include Ted Leonsis, the chairman of AOL, Dan Rosenzweig, a Yahoo COO, and the football player Brent Jones. None of these people went to grad school, but they all own a lot of stuff. They decided Vox should exist, and now it does. Rich people pay successful professionals to make content for unsuccessful professionals. That content sells better if it sounds vaguely academic and authoritative, so it does. It's an industry built around taking advantage of vulnerable people's anxieties. It's televangelism for fallen professionals. So many interesting things. Um, And, you know, when you're talking about uh, the desire to perpetually go back to the root cause, the, you know, something caused this and then back and back and back in a chain. Mm. There's a film I watched two days ago called Riders of Justice. It is a Danish film with Mads Mikkelsen uh, in a key role. And it's about this very theme. It's absolutely brilliant. I was going to suggest we do it one week about the fallacy of getting to the heart of anything, of the the perpetual, Mm. um, the desire to paper over the um, horror of the chaos moss, the void of meaninglessness with an essential, you know, godlike cause. But yes, interesting, the guy, (laughs) the key funder, what else he funds? Mm. Yeah, I'm glad you did that research, Benjamin, because I was thinking about that because I remember someone telling me about Vox's funders and I was like, oh, I should really look into that. But of course, I didn't. But so I'm glad you did. Um, I, I agree, Benjamin, you're quite right that it's it's in fact, we should be more precise. It's opinion presented as fact. That's mm-hmm. that's what's happening. It's not because I was I was sort of more thinking of this as opinion being presented as opinion, but it's not. 
Exactly, because that would be to admit, in fact, that there were there were gaps and there were holes and there are mm-hmm. controversies, and and so there are little moments where they do that, where they say, well, there there are just there are disagreements among scientists about this, but overall we can say blah, 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 you know, like in the sugar one, for example, mm-hmm. um, and I, but you're right, it's opinions presented as facts, which is basically like. So it's the fact, it's the fetish for the fact in a way that does a lot of work here. You know, it's like if I can just accumulate enough facts, facts are like quantity. You know, I mean, you see this all the time, whether we're talking about the COVID figures, you know, we live in this regime of numbers and polls and stats. And, you know, has anyone ever been participated in a poll? Has anyone ever asked your opinion about anything? Like, no. I mean, you see all these YouGov polls in the UK where it's like, 97% 97% of the 53% of people so you're like who are these people like are you the people am I the person are we the people like you know where are they getting I mean of course they sort of randomly ring up people <laughs> I used to participate in YouGov polls in undergrad while I was at Warwick for the vouchers <laughs> so it is real it's not some lizard conspiracy they do exist what, what what did they give you vouchers for and did they tip your opinion one way or another young man well, you, know, you you could you go through the poll questions, and some of the poll questions would feel more misleading or more rigged than others. Uh, a lot of them were just marketing surveys. Most of what they wanted me to do wasn't political; it was marketing surveys, and those annoyed me. I didn't like to do those. But uh, have you seen this brand? Yeah. Have, what's your level of familiarity? Do you have a good impression of them? And, and, and so then, did on. they give you a product, a voucher for a product of that of that brand? They'd give you points, and if you wanted to exchange the points early, you'd get a gift card with a particular company. But if you waited long enough and accumulated enough points, you could just get a hundred pounds or 50 pounds or a hundred dollars. You could just get a check for a small amount of money. I'm sure if you did enough of them for long enough. Strategic mind, you went for the the larger sum. (laughs) Yeah. You had to do a lot of them to get there though. And eventually I got tired of of it, especially (laughs) all of the brand stuff. So I I eventually gave up on, on it after a couple of years, but I used to really really pound them for a while because I <laughs> wanted to see what kinds of questions people wanted answers to. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, interesting. It's interesting. Uh, this, in this film, The Rise of Justice, there's a, there's a couple of characters who are kind of tech geeks and hackers, and they're obsessed with the algorithm. The algorithm has the truth, and they develop this algorithm to tell them the truth. And it starts, there's a, an early scene where they're presenting to some corporate people, and they've done this research with the algorithm, and it's proved that people with not very much money drive a Kia or a Ford, People who have some money are drawn to brands like Toyota or Nissan. And then people who have lots of expendable money buy, are interested in cars like Mercedes or Audi. And it's like... <laughs> but also, I mean, by the way, uh, opinion disguised as fact, that's ideology, right? Yeah, no, of course. I it's was just, just being too generous to Vox. I was, I was saying that they're presenting Doxa, but it's even worse. There's another layer. But, okay. but it's interesting. Can I just say about ideology that like, okay, so this is, a, this is discourse generation. This is the generation of ideology or like the communication of ideology. But do, is this their idea? So would you say, Benjamin, that they do their research, but they have this ideological position and then they just do what confirms the ideological position or are they generating the ideology? Well, I think that there is a little bit of a push-pull where you have to, to create something like Vox, have positions that are amenable to the funders, right? The people who, are, who put the money into Vox have to like well enough the particular people who are leading it and the particular views that those people have. Of course, those people will, will present their positions as amenable. They may deviate to some degree in the margins in areas where it doesn't matter, especially if that builds credibility for the Mm -hmm. overall apparatus. But everywhere where it matters, they will align well enough with the funder's position that the funders will not go after them. I I was also thinking as I was listening to Nina's answer, uh, to, to some of Nina's thoughts, about how academics used to communicate with the public. Mm -hmm. And it used to be that we had this kind of type within academia, the public intellectual, who would participate in academic discussions and then had the communication skills to bring some of those ideas into public space. Those public intellectuals would debate each other. Mm. They would, would position themselves as offering a view informed by their participation in academia, but not as the only view. Uh, and they were actively seeking very often disagreement and public conversation, public debate, right? 
instead of the celebrity public intellectual, this is a move toward the celebrity journalist. And it's a kind of humanities or social science version of the science journalist, like someone uh, like maybe even a Bill Nye, right, who communicates science to the public, but they themselves have not done very much scientific research or, or none at all. A lot of science reporting has for years and years been ripped on for oversimplifying studies and oversimplifying the results of studies. And it's very easy to demonstrate in the case of science studies that that is being done, right? But once you start to move into the humanities and social sciences where things are more complicated, it's also harder to prove that these journalists are just giving journalistic-y bullshitting narratives. Right. And there are very few academics anymore because of the way that you get up in academia, which is to write in the style that journals like to publish. Very few that have the communication skills to directly interface with the public. And so a consequence of this is that instead of the public intellectual, we have the celebrity journalist, the kind of minor celebrity uh, wonk journalist mm. who doesn't actually have an education in the field that they report on, who is famous mainly for being readable. And that's about all there is to it. And so what we have now are billionaires sponsoring these celebrity journalists. And these billionaires are giving their preferred account of academic research through these mouthpiece journalists. And the academy is unable to communicate with the public except through these people. So the only way that you can get your view out or, or your ideas out is to talk to these journalists who will then only include what you say if it resonates with the perspectives they wish to push. Yeah, I agree with that. I would only add in one other kind of character, which might be something like the activist academic, right? Who is not the public intellectual in the sense that you mentioned, the, the person who's prepared to debate publicly, often in detail, often, you know, often maybe even in a quite sort of aggressive, you know, intense way. And some of the footage from like the 1970s, when you look at these, even the 80s, to some extent, you know, these debates between public intellectuals, yeah, they, they, they are willing and they, they want a public discussion, right? But what you sometimes have now is like the activist academic, who's someone who's kind of um, positioned by virtue of their passion, almost. And it doesn't even necessarily have to do with their discipline, although it could do. But it's something like, and I saw, I could see this happening. And, you know, like, sometimes people would position me like this when I was teaching at university, like, oh, activist and academic. And I would say, please don't call me an activist. You know, it also implies that other people are like, pacifists or something like that the activist is somehow like a category of person um but i think it's but it's again it's a very kind of media savvy media friendly type of figure you know is the academic who's also prepared to sort of be a bit political and usually of course these are in keeping with the you know the general ideology or at least they're not you know you'll get fired if you say things that are outside of that um yeah, manifestly right and it's it's very interesting there was a good piece by um freddie de, de boer i don't quite know how you pronounce his surname but um he he writes an interesting substack and he, you know he's been around a while he, he's written about education and various things and he um had an interesting piece today about pitchfork which is a kind of obviously online music review and it relates to what we're saying and basically pitchfork I think lately or periodically if they do this, they, they go back and they revise their reviews sometimes, right? So someone originally listens to the album like 40 times or, you know, that's how often I would listen to the many times I've listened to the album I was reviewing and, and you know, has written a, a, a critical article. And by critical, I don't necessarily mean being damning, although in some cases you might give a very low score, you know, they use a point score. Um and what they've done is gone back and revised those artists who are now hip to like to give them like higher scores because whoever reviewed them the first time around didn't understand that, you know, it's all about like liking the right thing. It's not about what you actually critically thought of the piece of work or the album or the song. And and it's absolutely deranged. And Freddie Dubois just says, look, I mean, these people like clearly don't care anything about music. It, he said, if you ask them to choose between like listening to the content of what they're supposed to be into and being on the right side, like having the right opinion, they would choose having the right opinion. Like clearly that's what they're doing. <laughs> and you can see how it's much more convenient if you're just running an entertainment publication and you're trying to sell and generate clicks. Why would you want someone with an arts background who's going to give an artistic review of a piece, what you would much rather have is an entertainment journalist mm. who owes their entire career to you and who doesn't have any training in the arts at all and who spends all of their time reading other entertainment journalism 
and is therefore very hip to the trends in entertainment journalism and to the trends in the discourse, is able to anticipate those trends, and is therefore able to write the kinds of reviews that will make the magazine or publication more influential in the space. This is happening to almost every kind of mid-level discourse. Mm. Every kind of mid-level discourse is being populated by celebrity journalists with no expertise in their own field Mm -hmm. who are paid to represent specialist fields through a lens amenable to a a, a wealthy benefactor. 100%. I mean, this is totally the case in my field. Totally the case. Um, It's interesting, though, because this this turn of, you know, we talk about... said many times religion isn't religion. I see religion as uh, the magical thinking of the ideology of promise and the organized, organized religion, if you believe in God, can be more honest and you, you, you do your various rituals and leave God to the side and you get on with your week and we live in a more religious times than ever. God is unconscious, da 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 But we, so, so the point is that anything can, be, can take on this religious, magical uh, ideology of promise turn and just as anything can be anything... So, and this is that, you know, when you go to psychoanalysis, any symptom, there's no, when people try to psychoanalyze or, you know, do a dictionary of sim- symbology in your dreams, it's like bollocks, anything can be anything, you know, there's no one-to-one elision and your entire subjective history can can be embodied in a symptom. But anyway, um, the thing is that the, the activist is no longer the activist. The whistleblower is no longer the whistleblower. The scientist is no longer the scientist. You know, science isn't science, TM. It's yeah. sitting back, observing the, you know, using the scientific method, which is a technology to allow humans to sit back and observe the, the, the contradiction of the universe. It is not projecting anything onto it. And so we're going to do the B-side on this, this science today and how science is becoming something that is completely other. Trust the science. You know, it's, you have the facts, facts will hurt your feelings, whatever they say on the right. And then this, I believe in science, but obviously both are completely wrong. And, and this, I believe in science thing, you know, you have the scientists, the superheroes. I was saying to saying earlier that I do think that this obsession with STEM is actually an ideological obsession to try to recruit more and more people into like over-educate, overproduce the workers, <laughs> their, their labor will be valueless eventually. Um, and I think this, this, this pushes, yeah, anyway, but I do think when you have certain realms, there is a need for education. So I'm not against education and things like that, but I'm against the neoliberalization of education. But um, yeah, we have this weird turn, this weird obsessive, as if you can lock down science into something that is what you already think, or that it yeah. has this aesthetics of fact. But when when it's nothing to do, for instance, if we look at the, the COVID, okay, we have the scientific analysis, but part of science is working out what happened. And suddenly you're... you're you are deemed ideological if you say that, which is precisely not ideological. And then it's like, trust the science, trust the science, trust the science. It's like, well, yes, the science involves things you don't like. Yeah. Well, what, we, what we have is a group of, of discourse mages who are paid to turn complicated areas of life into narratives that are amenable to the people who pay them, right? And they exist in, in many different areas of the economy and of society at this stage. And- why would you pay someone who has any kind of, of external loyalty to truth or to some other thing when you can instead hire these discourse mages who owe everything to you and without you, they would be plunged into the proletariat, right? So they, they are completely dependent on you and they are a- willing and able to turn anything into anything with words and language. And what they're really paid to do is to understand discourse, to understand how it moves and how it flows and to make insertions into it which push it in the direction or which float along in the direction that uh, people with money wish for it to float along. I I think that that the thing that is uh, so aggravating to, I think, people in any specialized field who really are specialists is that we we are stuck with these people representing specialized disciplines to the public and therefore, these people are constantly stealing valor from people in specialist fields. And because they're using ec- expert, uh, this, this expert thing mm-hmm. to push particular perspectives that are often not in the interests of ordinary people, yeah. they are making the academics and specialists in general appear to be stooges and agents 
of rich people. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, there, there's also a process going on in the universities, which is actively trying to make that the case. Mm-hmm. And so for yeah. those of us who are not doing that, it's very frustrating because any attempt on our part to say anything is immediately filtered by the public through this lens of, well, yeah, but everybody is using this expert stuff to push us around. So why should I listen to to you? And so there's a total loss of authority Mm -hmm. on the part of the disciplines and on the part of all specialized areas of life. Every area of life loses authority because these discourse mages steal valor Mm -hmm. from all disciplines, all modes of, of inquiry and philosophy. And the result is that they all become, in the eyes of the public, worthless and valueless. And this creates a public which is perfectly ready to say, why are we funding universities, except insofar as those universities produce jobs for my kids? Why should we fund academics, intellectuals, philosophers? Why should we have them? They're just bullshitters who, who are in the pocket of rich people Absolutely. and use, you know, exist to push us around. People feel this way. They legitimately feel this way because rich people have have used their money over the last 50 years to build think tanks, to use grants, to take over departments and universities. And they've created these these, uh, public outfits to replace public intellectuals with discourse mages. And they've injected enormous, enormous sums of money over the last 50 years in this project. And it's a project which is completely destroying academic life as a bastion for criticism, as a bastion for independent thinking. Uh, and alongside with that, the arts and culture. And that's so much of what we end up talking about on the show, unfortunately, because so little of the work that comes out anymore is work which substantively challenges anything, mm-hmm. because increasingly it is economically impossible for such work to be made. Yes, it precisely. This is totally happened with psychoanalysis. The stuff that you get, the vul- well, it's interesting, a lot of vulgarized vulgarization I really, really like, but so much of this sort of academic activist type is the complete opposite of psychoanalysis. The psychoanalysis is actually very emancipatory. Freud has his lineage from Hegel and Marx. You know, it's very, it's really depressing. It's really depressing. And as you say, like I was saying recently that Pete went on the show with an alternative audience and there was this whole like, you know, this guy is just making up, just talking, talking, talking. It doesn't make any sense. It's like people are so not used to having complex actual non-ideological discussions that it, you can't even hang your hang a hook on when something good appears you know it's just sort of like what is this completely doesn't make sense to me but um yeah and it, it really really destroys me to see the realm that i'm in film um i'm trying to do something about it but i know i won't be able to um being destroyed by this corporate basically the move for for corporate socialism and the ideology that needs to justify it and the the work that was there to all, you know, art is about challenging, about pointing out the contradiction and all this kind of stuff. And it's been completely neutered. And any time that you do do it, you're, you know, what are you doing? This is over intellectual. It doesn't make sense. No one's going to watch it, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, this is just soul destroying. Yeah. And when I say that there is a a stealing of valor, I don't mean to suggest in case any listeners think I might be suggesting, that there is some bastion of academics or intellectuals who actually do have the facts that you just have to find. Uh, What I'm saying is that there is a type of academic discourse which is not about, I'm telling you the truth, but I've spent a lot of time looking at this, and I've been thinking about it a lot. Here are some things that I think might be the case based on what I've been looking at. What do you guys think? You guys have also been looking at this a lot for a long time. Do you think there's anything in what I've done? Do you have anything critical to say about it? Can you, from the Mm -hmm. perspectives that you have and the work that you've done, add anything to what I'm doing and help me get me closer to figuring out the thing that I'm still thinking about that I'll probably be thinking about for my whole but life. But this is, this is it. This is the dialogic, right? This is the all sides of the contradiction. And it's not that anybody has the, there's no undivided other, you know, there's no absolute, but there are this collision, this kaleidoscopic collisions. And that's how you, you know, you tarry with contradiction and move forward. Because you can't find the truth in one person. There yeah. is no superhero. There no. is no person who is, is uh, you know, has achieved a unity with the entire cosmos that's permanent and everlasting. Absolutely. And this is we what I meant. We all just have our little fragments of the time we've spent <laughs> exactly. thinking about different things. 
And we can only get anywhere with those fragments when we talk to each other and and work with other people who have other fragments. But this is what we I meant by, um, by by asserting exactly by by Pete's thing the other day that he goes on and this guy's giving him quick fire questions and he's sort of sitting there being like I don't know I don't know what I think or what's your opinion on this it's like well it's complicated and then people are like you're just a bullshitter you've got nothing to say because people are just so used to being told that there is an absolute when there isn't sorry. <laughs> Um, yeah, I just wanted to go back, Helen, to your amazing, um, uh, uh, well, uh, miss um, statement of the the right wing uh, facts don't care about your feelings, which you put, which is Ben Shapiro's line, hey, which, right, you, which, you, which you no, which you instead uh, enunciated as facts will hurt your feelings, <laughs> which is kind of closer to what I was saying, <laughs> that facts will hurt your feelings, um, which is a kind of like, I don't know, a black pill version of the right wing, oh, facts are just indifferent to you, right? Like, I'm actually saying something even more um, sort of nihilistic and, and bleak, I suppose, which is like, um, <laughs> that actually, you know, reality in inverted commas is well, is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away, as Philip K. Dick said. But you know that the, the as Benjamin says, you know the the kind of the the serious labour, the fragmentary labour of entire disciplines that builds upon one in one and each another, and you know that people at least can get to a stage where they agree about the thing it is they're talking about before mm-hmm. they even begin to talk about what it is, you know. And like about ninety percent of philosophy is conceptual clarification. Like it takes like most of the time to like even decide what we mean by a single term, right? But but even then, that's that's an amazing place to begin, and then you start to even think, well, what would be a a better question to ask, you know, and it's a matter of discernment and judgment and, you know, all of those things, even deciding, depending on what we mean by those things. But that, you know, one of the con- problems about the soundbite culture is, you know, and it's kind of stupidity is it's, it's also very lazy. Like it's extremely easy to dismiss vast swathes of human production on the basis of the identity of who produced it. Right. So you can look at the entirety of human achievement and say, I'm not going to read any books by dead white men, right? This will save you an awful lot of time. <laughs> if you see what I mean, like it's actually a shortcut. If you dismiss everything because of who wrote it, not, not you know, regardless of what they actually said, their contribution to knowledge, art, literature, science, mathematics, theology, whatever, it's it's just a way of kind of, I don't know, making everything more, I don't know, simple and palatable. Smoothie. Yeah. yeah a, a lot of people are wanting the the facts to cathartically satisfy their values. And so they're going to the facts, imagining that they will find the facts to be on their side. And if the facts aren't on their side, they'll make it happen by reading it in such a way so that it happens. And the, the point that you make about facts, not only being indifferent, but potentially hurting your feelings. You know, I, I think that there is fundamentally an estrangement between the reality of, of the descriptive and values. Our universe has values that do not match its reality. And so it is fundamentally divided at the normative descriptive level. Yeah, as Plato you know, contrasts form with, with things that have being, right? There, there's just a fundamental estrangement. And I was thinking about the other day, my girlfriend went into the uh, bathroom and turned on the fan in the bathroom. And it's a bathroom we hadn't used in a little while. And there was a thud and then a bunch of scurrying, right? Because it turns out that in the time that the fan hadn't been used, a mouse and some other mice had gone up into the vent and, and had kind of huddled huddled there in the, in the vent. And then the fan turns on and the mice are thrown by the fan and they thud and they run in terror, right? <laughs> and I, I, you know, she told me this and I thought about it and I went, you know, at any given moment within any, you know, there's always that line that within at any time within six feet of you, there's a mouse somewhere, right? And the whole universe, the whole the whole planet, is is just covered in mice. There are just millions and millions and millions of mice, and these mice, they're as smart as dogs, but they live lives that are short and full of terror and fear, and they have been evolutionarily bred to survive by being quiet and stealthy. And very quick, because they are constantly threatened by everything, including even the fan in the bathroom, right? We live in a universe where 
millions and millions of mice that are as, as clever as dogs live in terror all the time. Every moment, there's a mouse within six feet of you, and it's living a nasty, brutal, short life full of terror. Can I tell you every something? Every moment. <laughs> a really funny... Sorry, sorry. So if that's the kind of universe we live in, unless you have very broken conceptions of the good, there's an estrangement between our feelings, what we care about, and the reality. And we got to live in that estrangement. We can't deny it. And it's the denial that then leads to scapegoating, et cetera, et cetera. If we can't face it, 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 it rises another that we must annihilate because we believe we can get rid of this chaos mask, get to a utopia, but we need either self-sabotage, self-harming, or the an enemy whose shadow the utopian fantasy continues to exist. I have a really horrible story about um, a mouse. And then I wanted to talk about uh, magical thinking and intuition and when something feels good, it might be right. And that's something I really feel like has developed over the last several decades. Um, but basically my sister uses like sh wax, sugaring wax. You know, you, you, you get set sugar to a certain temperature, you boil it and then you, you can use it as very effective wax. And for some reason she'd left a, boil, a bowl of her sugar in the garage. Anyway, one morning, this mouse was found in this abandoned bowl of, of sugar. And, you know, it was sticky enough that, you know, he was able to get a little bit of it. But basically, he got in there and was stuck and trapped. And what often happens to animals, so it's this thing, learned helplessness. I mean, there's all these sort of studies about it. But um, is that an animal, when they can see no way out, eventually they just die. Even if maybe there would be a way out, but if they can see no way out, they'll die. And this poor mouse overnight found this this sort of ambrosia in a bowl, the size of himself, all of the sugar, found himself, and he, the little spatula was like the little wooden plank to get into it. And then he was sort of there frozen, just dead in a horrible, horrible, horrible. Anyway, just a horrible death. Um, but but this thing, I think, Nina, you were talking about it, about um, the opposite of science is almost this sort of like, trust your gut kind of thing. And obviously trusting your gut instincts and intuition are, you know, sometimes it's true, but often it's not. And uh, I, um, well, somebody I, I knew um, really didn't like Freud, even though he was into quote unquote psychoanalysis, but into a version, again, this cathartic version that Freud was very, very adamant about rejecting and keeping psychoanalysis, you know, to the core of his ideas. And, you know, oh, we've moved on from it or it's too negative. It's not very nice. But actually, it's in the not very niceness that the emancipatory ordering unhappiness, which is about as bloody positive as it's going to get, arises. A recent um, a film that we're making, um, we were involved with this scheme and we were told, oh, it's too negative, it's too negative. But if you, you know, it's too dark, it's too depressing. But the film is you know, essentially about the theme of hope or sort of um, false hope and stuff. But it's like, do you not understand the dialectic of storytelling? <laughs> In order to have light, you have to have darkness. And, you, you know, it's all about the sort of change. So it's very, very strange. But, but, but there is this sort of like um, magical thinking, new ageiness. And as we have become less and less religious, more and more new age practices arise. And there's sort of, you know, the witchcraft and the crystals and all this kind of stuff and the tarot cards. But this sort of belief in this, and this is this um, sort of Jungian version of this subconscious as if there's a truth beneath something that you just have to listen to and bring to the surface and then you'll be guided through the world. It's like, could not be further from the truth. There is no material unconscious other than like a rupture and it's all on the sort of the same level. But yeah, this weird belief that tr truth is that which feels good, which is just like, it's really strange that people think that. I think I have a slightly different take on intuition and, and it sort of relates to one of our earlier discussions about the IQ meme, you know, the one where you have the kind of the sort of um, low IQ working class figure and, and then the kind of high IQ 130 plus sort of mystical esoteric figure both agreeing on a point and then the the midwit, the, the, the character in the middle who's, you know, the Dunning-Kruger person is sort of fretting and coming up with the sort of Vox-like, you know, d explanations for everything. <laughs> and, and you know, it's an interesting point about how you get to the same conclusions. Like whether you go through, let's say, experience and a kind of more direct and immediate, not to fetishize, not to kind of, you know, like uh, suggest that there is any anybody or any type of person who has a kind of, you know, a priori sort of, um, I don't know, more... Um, authentic mode of existence, but nevertheless, there are ways of living that are more practical, that are more direct. You know, mm -hmm. if you if you grow up somewhere where people are fundamentally 
using their hands all the time. They're they're with each other a lot, and you know, um, like I'm thinking of, of of parts of where I grew up as well. And and whereas you know, but and then a certain level of education, you start to become actually very distantiated and alienated from you know working class communities by the by the theories and the ideas and the the luxury beliefs that you've accumulated, right? Which actually turn you against in many cases the the experiences and the mm-hmm. kind of you know things that you might have thought had you stayed and the things that people think where you know where they stay and and you know and, and what I like about that meme as well is that the you know so either you go through the kind of like uh you know facts will hurt your feelings <laughs> route and you come to a particular conclusion or you go through the this is this is experience and this is life and this is like the school of life and intuition and but it's the person in the middle who's the loser but i right? would it's i like, would say that the esoteria is the midwifery these days i think that there is this sort of like magical stuff that has become like you know has become the, like you know the the witchcrafty stuff, and then actually, I what I say is different. Like intuition and like trusting your experience is very different from going to um, some sort of like magical person who waves a few crystals in front of your head and says it's all going to be fine. And then you you know there are signs in the universe and this kind of thing. I can rectify this. I can rectify this. Okay, empiricism and rationalism are both better than getting your view of the world based on authority. Okay, the midwit gets their position based on authority, Mm -hmm. right? They have gone to school long (laughs) enough that they don't trust where they come from, but they don't stay in school long enough to develop a position. So instead, they go by what professors or people who remind them of teachers, professors have told them, right? They aren't doing the method. They don't progress far enough to learn the methodology of any discipline. So they're not engaged in methods, right? But yeah. also they have gone to a school which has taken them out of their home community and environment. So they have also dispensed with what worked where they came from. So they've dispensed with what you learn by living empirically and by engaging with life. But they have also not acquired what you learn by rationally thinking about something following some kind and, of method. And can I just add, I think there's a, a, a very good, I agree with that synopsis much clearer than mine but there is also an occulting of the occult right the mainstreaming of things like witchcraft and the kind of harry potter magic and this kind of thing also obscures the fact that Mm -hmm. magic has a a, a profound and interesting history that relates very much to the history of science you know whether we're talking about alchemy or uh, number magic or whatever you know and and that there is a way in which the the mainstreaming of New Agey, you know, occult, like light, wicker, magic and whatnot has nothing to do with like magic. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> it's well. true. I, I think that basically there has been a corporatization or, a, a, you know, a, a wholeness and completeness answer provided. So, you know, you, the gurus or the sort of, you know, this, that and the other, the, the mainstreaming of horoscopes and all that kind of stuff. And I think that just, I'm not saying that like that stuff has a greater p- propensity, but there is this when it's sort of occult and sort of sold as, within this, you know, and this is my point. I think the ideology of promise is key to understanding capitalism rather than anything else. And if, yeah, it's sold that behind this veil of reality, there is this something else and you can control your reality. You can meditate your way to wholeness and completeness. That's just the usual authoritarian crap. It is is profoundly authoritarian, you know, rather than yeah. it being, you know, um, that maybe some other interpretation of what is seen, or that there's another, you know, there's an unconscious and all this kind or of stuff. Or a relation to nature or energy or, you know, what it means or desire or all of these things, which is what the history of magic, if you read Giordano Bruno, it's, you know, it's about understanding desire, for example, and how people are actually libidinally bound by particular desires that they don't even necessarily know that they have and this is how you control people i mean a lot of the history of magic is actually a a history of the theory of power it's it's a history of the theory of authority in fact it's an attempt to understand how it is that power operates on people because i have friends who are say you know more into kind of a confidence but i i'm not basically because of an experience i have and i wonder if it was just at a time for instance in my life that things were quite difficult and one one was looking for answers um but that the, the, maybe that the turn of this sort of like corporatization of the the occult, quote unquote, is is fairly recent, say twenty tens or something, or post recession or something. That when people have been you know very anxious, people are kind of you know a lot of people who end up going to 
you know, tarot card readers or he- healers, for instance, I was unwell for a number of years and, you know, it, it was a, it's a long story, but within the community of ill people, you turn to all of this stuff and all these authoritarian, horrible things. And it's really sad, but, you know, stepping in for the fact that the financialized, horrible medical system, well, A, you know, science doesn't know everything, medicine doesn't know everything, but also the system is fucked. Um, but, you know, I, so I'm very, very wary because of my personal experience, but I don't know whether those kinds of experiences are more recent, as in, you know, well, in this, yeah. I, I think the difficulty is that the guru, the philosopher who opens a school, must deal with the problem that most of the people who come to the school are coming to the school imagining that they're going to get an answer rather than that they're going to learn a method or an approach, right? And only a very small number of the people who come are coming for the reason that the philosopher or guru opened the school. So then there's a question of what do you do with all the other people? Can you make any use of them? Do you turn them away? What do you do with these people who insist on coming and learning the thing that isn't there, right? And that's, I think, always been a question that gurus and philosophers have always had to answer uh, at every stage of history. And they tend to find uses for these people. And these uses uh, change their form or style depending on what works in the context in which they exist. But we should go over to the B-side and talk about this stuff more and talk more about science. So that's what we're going to do. So thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you'll join us over there. It's patreon.com slash the lack podcast. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.